Hey guys, you're listening to Sheer Crime Podcast. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Amy. Why don't you go ahead, grab yourself a drink, get comfy, and let's dive into this week's podcast. We sure have our drinks. What are we drinking today, Amy? We are going to be indulging this evening in some truly hard seltzers. Uh, This one is the wild berry flavor. Yummy. Yeah. I really love Trulies. Are you ready? Let's pop our tops. Ooh. Ooh, That was fun. That gave a little bit of a splash. Was that a little bit of ASMR for all of you (laughs) out there listening? That's still a thing. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I mean, this week's episode is very tragic and Horrific. very very sad I, I don't think i was mentally prepared honestly for Who this can be it's it's very hard um this week's episode is about the netflix documentary um the trials of gabriel fernandez episode one a shock to the system how many the episodes name. are in this one this is a six episode six episodes series so that means we're gonna have six episodes on this we are okay because we're not gonna jam it all together There's too much. Yes. So we're going to do it episode by episode because we're probably going to have about an hour of coverage, I would think, for each episode. Because each episode, I want to say, is about 40 minutes. Yeah. Yep. We'll see how it goes. But that's kind of what we're doing um, with this week's episode. But, you know, the name, A Shock to the System, isn't most things nowadays when it comes to our justice system? I mean... Seems like it. Our criminal justice system is very flawed. And this documentary is a prime example of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into this week's episode. All right. So the episode starts off, if you haven't seen it, with the 911 call that occurs on Friday, May 24th, 2013. You hear a female voice, I'm assuming the mother, saying to the 911 dispatch, my son is not breathing. Now, she doesn't sound super worried. She doesn't. No, she was kind of calm about it, actually. It was very ominous to listen very, to it. Yes. And then they skip to a second phone call, or she hands the phone over, but then there's a male on the phone. Yes. And he says that this child is not breathing. He's doing compressions until the paramedics show up. They ask him, do you know how to do CPR? And he says, yeah, I'm compressing his chest. And he says, yes, you also have to breathe into his mouth. Right. Okay. Right. Um, just so he didn't really know that. what he was doing. <laughs> right. And do you think he actually was? No. I don't really get the impression that he was either. No, the, I think this whole thing was a plot to make it not seem like this was violence and abuse to this child. Agreed. That's why they called. That's the only reason they called. They probably wouldn't have otherwise. So then it skips to the trauma nurse in the ER who is, you know, getting that phone call from dispatch that they have paramedics on the way to the hospital. They have an eight-year-old in cardiac arrest, code three, which is the highest level of emergency. So her name is Christine Estes. She's an RN at the Antelope Valley Hospital, and she gets the phone call. She knows what they're expecting to some extent. Right. So they're getting all hands on deck, right? They know that this child is supposedly having cardiac arrest, but there's some questionable trauma behind it. Yep. So they don't exactly know what they're getting into, but they have so many people involved. Surgeons. They have, uh, you know, the blood transfusion guys on hand. They have everything because they don't really know what they're walking into. Well, I think from the phone call they got, they knew it was something they probably had never seen before. Because number one, cardiac arrest for an eight-year-old. Unheard of. It doesn't happen. Right. And they told him immediately that just by visually seeing him, something else had to have been going on. Yeah. And it sounds like in the EMT vehicle, he had flatlined at some point. They couldn't find a pulse. So they have to bring him back. They do restore his pulse prior to him arriving. They get him there. Again, no pulse. They bring him back. They realize that he's very cold. So they're trying to warm up his body. And finally, they end up having to bring him into a CAT scan to try to figure out all of the damage that's happened. And again, he flatlines. They bring him back. So already, this is a very short amount of time. 
And how many times has this child already seemingly passed? Oh, I'm I'm getting goosebumps right now. It's awful. It's heartbreaking to me. I, it's it's it's, awful. it's really really tough. And you can tell even the nurse explaining this story even oh. now, she's having such a hard time dealing with this. Oh my god! Still, she's it changed her life. Yeah, it's awful. So she talks about she's going through kind of the checklist of the trauma. Now it sounds like she is the one that's kind of there taking all the notes. Everybody around her is screaming what's happening, what they're seeing, what they're uh, noticing about his appearance, and she's making it all, you know, checking it all off the list, Mm -hmm. making sure that it's as complete of a report as possible. So she talks about his skull. There was a depressed skull fracture. She says that it's one of those types of fractures that in a normal skull should be nice and round. In this part, there's a dent. And if you were to push on it, it feels like Rice Krispies, which, what in the actual fuck? I can't believe. Uh Oh my gosh, I would be crying writing this stuff down. It would be horrendous. I mean, the shock, the pure shock that you would be in could be the only way to survive, you know? So she goes on to say that he had what looked like burn marks all over his throat. He had bruising and cuts on his face, blacked eyes, reddened base of his penis was cuts above it. He had what looked like abrasions on the top of his feet, seemingly from being dragged, um, ligature marks on his ankles from being tied up. Now, ligature marks on ankles, what? How was he hung up? And does that correlate with the injuries to his genitals? Is is that part of it? Something must have been happening. It's just awful. It's awful. She says every single part of his body had some kind of trauma. They had um, remnants of bullets in his lung and his groin and his face. Bullets. Bullets. Yep. BB, BB bullets. So bullets on their own are very damaging, right? BB guns are supposed to not be as damaging, which is why he wasn't in there for gunshot wounds. But at the same time, that was a fairly close shot. For it to embed itself that far into the tissue. Right. I grew up with guns. I know what a BB gun can do and what it can't do. That was very close range. Shocking. Um, They said that he had cigarette marks all over his skin. Oh, that got me fucking fired awful. up. Awful. I, oh my gosh. I just fucking people that can do this. Using a, a child, child as an ashtray. Oh, it's so beyond frustrating. I... I She said he didn't even look like a child and all of his stages of trauma or, you know, all of the trauma had different stages of healing, indicating this did not all happen at the same time. They had bruises that were, you know, swollen and you could tell were fresh. They had other ones that were yellowing, indicating that they had been there for a while. Mm -hmm. This was not a one time thing. This was this child's fucking life. And she just kept saying, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I will always remember his name. His name is Gabriel. So much trauma, so much damage. There's so many questions. Why is CPS not doing anything? Why aren't the sheriffs doing anything? How did this happen? They go back to the 911 call and how it was that this happened. And the mother, her name was Pearl Fernandez, we find out a little bit later, simply said, that he had slipped in the bathtub. The 911 call said that he had slipped in the bathtub. Slipped in the bathtub. And he has burn marks on him. He has drag marks, ligature marks. That's he the most hu- dangerous bathtub I've ever heard of. Well, and then I think we even hear later on that um, Azario, her boyfriend, gives a different account of what happened. He does. So we'll, we'll find out a little bit more about that, too. So you can automatically tell. Yeah. Their, their story is not lining up. Not lining up at all. So... At some point, Children's Hospital critical care team shows up, takes him, because they are, in fact, a little bit more used to dealing with childhood injuries and whatnot. more of their specialty is is the pediatrics. Yes. And uh, so they show up. They take him. He had a pulse when they left. You come to find out he doesn't make it through the night. He ends up passing away. Christine, the RN nurse at the trauma ward, says... You know, I remember the first time I ever did CPR on a kid. I'll always remember it. And it was horrible, but it didn't affect me like this did. 
nothing has affected me like this did. This kid never has known love, never known what it feels like to be hugged. And she's saying this through tears. You can tell this is something that she is going to take with her Mm -hmm. to the grave. She will never forget this. And she even says that in 14 years in this trauma unit, this is that case for her. She says that uh, even her family, you know, at home, celebrate his birthday every year. I love that. What a good human being to do something like that. I mean, you see the outpouring later on in the episode of the community when they find out too, because they are outraged that this happened to this little boy. Mm -hmm. And even the neighbors had no clue that something like this was happening right next door to them. And how could you? Obviously, you would never know. But it's just, it's awesome that she and her family do that for him to, you know, hopefully... In some spirit world, he knows that, you know, people cared about him. Absolutely. Well, and we get the intro, like music, and they kind of show you like a little boy sitting in a cabinet. It's You hear the intro music, and it's kind of going like back and forth to like the justice system and like Gabriel and this cabinet and stuff. But they actually show us this cabinet, which looks like a piece of evidence, Mm -hmm. and it has a wood piece where the handles are as if you're trying to lock something in there. Sure. And so they kind of, you know, feed that to us. So we assume that that's where Gabriel was kept by these monsters. Yes. And just seeing it alone is, it's horrifying. It's very scary to see that image. Absolutely. And right off the bat, we get to meet Garrett Therolf, who is a former LA Times reporter. Um, He had been with them for seven or eight years. He was covering the LA government, actually. Yeah. Um, The elected officials were making life and death decisions, and he wanted to be there to report on it and figure out what was going on. Yeah. And uncover that. He found Gabriel on a homicide blog in LA County. Yeah. I didn't even know they had such a thing as as a homicide blog. But yeah. It would make sense. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the LA Times maintains every single homicide in the county through this blog. So it's like a list, apparently, oh, yep. by date. Yeah. I think he was just, it looked as if he was just scrolling through it. And then he, he came across Gabriel's name and his age. And I'm sure that's what stuck out to him. Sure. Was his age. Because yep. it said eight. Yeah. Typically, you see people in their adult years. Sure. Under this, this homicide list. Yep. So they give us a little bit of a background on Gabriel. He was eight years old in the first grade. He had originally been raised by his uncle and his uncle's partner until age three. And then he went to live with his grandparents. And then six months before he died, he went to live with his mother and her boyfriend. Yeah. So I'm I'm a little curious as to where he was in the first three years of his life. Yes. I'm cur- I'm sure we'll learn more about yeah. that as the episodes go on. But I'm curious as to... Because in the pictures, it seemed like they were very loving people. Yes. Th- these uncles were very loving people. Yep. Same with his grandparents. Yeah. I mean, they seemed to love him and care for him. So I wonder, there must be some reason why the mom got him back. But there's obviously a reason she didn't have him at the beginning, too. Exactly. She didn't want him or something, which, again, is still sad to even say. Like, how do you not want your baby? Yeah. And it's hard for me, too, because I have a six-year-old who's Mm -hmm. so close to the age of Gabriel. Yeah. I couldn't imagine, you know, this this poor suffering of this boy. And, I mean, six months he'd only been with them before he died. Shocking. Six months. And we need to talk about, for a real quick second, the picture they show of Gabriel's mom. Yes. Yikes. Yikes is right. I literally had to double check to see what date this was supposed to have been taken. Because I swear to God, she was stuck in the 90s. Who puts lip liner on without lipstick? Oh my gosh. And the drawn on eyebrows. And the drawn on pencil eyebrows. They looked like Sharpies. Just a big old streak across her forehead. That's exactly what they look like. (laughs) Mind you, we're obviously not being, well, okay, we're former beauty, you know, beauticians. Yes, that's right. We can judge appearances all we fucking want. (laughs) And she is garbage. She is a piece of trash. So we're going to do it all day long with fucking Pearl Fernandez. (laughs) Yes, we're not going to victim shame, but you know what? We're going to fucking perpetrator shame. That's right. All day long. That is right. (laughs) Which is how much time she should have spent on those lips because they were awful. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yes, we'll we'll get back to her because when Ugh. we actually see her when she's indicted and in prison, she doesn't even look like the same person. I was gonna say the same thing. It she did not shocking. look like herself at all. Yes, it was it was very strange. But then again, I do wonder if that picture was taken much like in her younger years, maybe. It could have been like a yeah. year prior. Because I know that they had only been dating for a year or a year right. and a half, we hear, before Gabriel died. But still, I mean, mm-hmm. it was horrible. Now, we get to meet Ashley Dunn, who is a male, so it might be a little bit confusing. And during this whole episode, we're going to be meeting a lot of people. So we're going to try to remember to figure out who's who to give a good reminder, but there's a lot of people that they introduce us to in this episode. We might even start coming up with nicknames for people just to remind ourselves who the fuck we're talking about. Yes, because it's going to be tough to, over a podcast, kind of understand who all these people are and remember who all they are. So grab your pen and paper because you might need to take notes. Yes, take notes. Now, Ashley Dunn, he is a page one editor for the LA Times. Now, I looked up what that is, and I didn't get much. I couldn't figure out what a page one editor meant. Assuming he probably is the editor for the front page of the LA Times. That's what I gathered. For for all of the things on the front page, is what I'm kind of assuming, because the name kind of says it all. Well, for the LA Times, that's a big newspaper. So I'm assuming they have to have it broken down that much. Oh, for sure. You know? And what he had stated is, too, that murders and deaths happen all the time in Los Angeles. He said it didn't make the paper. It only made their website. That Gabriel's case didn't even make the paper because that's how much stuff they have to put in there and it didn't make it. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Why wouldn't this be a headline story? A child was murdered by his mom and her boyfriend. Yeah. In a his child. Home. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It I was either. very strange to me. And the LA Board of Supervisors got this case three days after Gabriel's death. So it brought a little bit more attention to it, brought it up a notch. Everyone knows who these Board of Supervisors are, but they barely know what they do. And who are these people? They're, what, the most powerful group in the city or something? That's what they say. Okay. Yeah, they, they say that they're the most powerful people in the city. And once they're elected, they most never, almost never get voted out. Really? Which, again, I'm like, how can that be allowed? Yeah. I know that happens all over the United States, but how can you get elected and then just you get to be in office until you retire? Yeah, indefinitely. You It should be like a presidential thing where it's four years. Yeah. Have the people vote, vote you in. And if you get another four years, great. And then it cuts you off at eight. Yeah. You know, that's what we have to do with presidents. Why isn't it the same way with these elected officials? Yeah. Because now they're getting way too much power. If they know that once they get elected that they're not leaving that chair, they can decide on so many things behind closed doors because they're all going to be this group of people. And they even talk about that. that They become this this group of people called the county family. Yeah. Tell us about what they do. Well, so they control an enormous budget in the county. About $30 billion. For one county. For one county. For LA County. Yep. And they employ about 107,000 people, which is the largest in LA. Wow. And they manage the hospitals, the funding of the police force, the CPS, the fire department, basically everything. Jeez. And we find out that the social workers get under scrutiny after word got out about Gabriel dying, making very serious errors, clearly, because... We're reminded of all the seven prior referrals that we had seen earlier. That there was multiple other referrals about the abuse and the neglect on Gabriel and nothing ever happened. Yeah. It's like, why does this happen? have to happen more than once, but it happened seven times to to him? Why were they still able to take care of this poor child? It broke my heart. Absolutely. So what they do is they then cut back to the Times reporter and they bring in the deputy managing editor for California Metro LA Times, Shelby Grad. And there's also a male. Who's also a male. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, he's talking to our first reporter here, Garrett Therolf. And, you know, they're, they're having a discussion that there's a bigger story here. It's not just the story of how this child died. There is a story that dates back at least six to eight months and longer if we're talking about other children. Right. In the system, in the county. Yes. You know, they're talking about how there's going to be an enormous challenge ahead of them trying to break through the secrecy of all of these different um, departments within the government that 
in some ways need to have, you know, secrets and classified information. Yep. And the privacy. Absolutely. I mean, they are dealing with children, after all. Right. And we do like to protect our minors. But there's too much, I believe. Too much secrecy. So what he talks about is, you know, with DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services out in California, he talks about how it's such a giant department. And it doesn't sound like the communication from the left wing to the right wing or the north wing to the south wing is exactly free-flowing. Which is also weird to me. It's like if you're working under the same corporation, because the DCFS is its own corporation, right? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you guys communicating everything that's happening Mm -hmm. with all these children? Yeah. We need to, everyone needs to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. So these things don't happen. Yeah. This is why it happened. Yeah. Why does it remind me of trying to call into your cable company or your phone company and you get talking to somebody and you have to tell your whole story (laughs) of what your problem is and then they transfer you on to somebody else and you have to tell the whole Whole story story of what your problem is and they can't help you so they transfer you on? No one takes notes. Nobody takes <laughs> notes. And in a world of technology, it's it should correct. not be a problem. It's not acceptable. It's totally <laughs> unacceptable. So he's talking about how it's just this huge, sprawling organization known for keeping details and secrets very under wraps. There had also been a little bit of, I guess, publicity negative around, you know, different things such as how many children are dying in foster care Mm -hmm. and how they're kind of keeping that stuff under the cloak of secrecy and privacy, not coming to light with why and potentially how it could have been avoided. The whole county is very tight-lipped. They've launched several investigations on who was talking to the press regarding anything that has to do with DCFS. And some of these sources in this case, for the reporters that were going after specifically what happened to Gabriel Fernandez and all of his, you know, information and note-taking. Because, like we mentioned, there had been social workers involved. So there were notes somewhere. Yeah. He had a file. You know, they said that the sources were pursued aggressively and threatened with criminal prosecution for leaking this information to the press. Mm -hmm. Which, I don't consider this leaking information. I'm sorry. No. I find it so fucked up. It doesn't make sense to me. Why like, hide it? Why Why is it so hush-hush? Mm-hmm. An innocent child died yeah. because DCFS did not Intervene. do their job and yeah. protect him like they should They should have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I know that they, they were after Garrett Theroff. And they were. they were doing his email searches. Thousands. Yeah. Of, of emails. They were seeing who was corresponding with him back and forth yeah. and what they were saying and what they were talking about. Because if they found out who it was and that informant... They were going to fire him Absolutely. and prosecution, prosecute him criminally. Yes. Yeah. What? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. No. It it makes you think that there's so many things going on underneath the carpet that they don't want to get pulled out. Oh. Right? From under them. Totally. There's so many things underneath that they're like, if this one thing gets out, now 500 other things are getting out. Yes. That's scary to me. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's one thing, you know it's more, right? Yes. So- with this, they they finally find a source who's going to speak with them for this documentary. And he decides, you know, to meet them in a hotel. He obviously can't have them come to his office. Yep. He doesn't want to be seen walking into the LA Times. So they meet in a neutral ground of this hotel. And they decide they're only going to sound record. They are not going to videotape. They can't have this person out there. He basically is going to come in and kind of talk to them about the file that he pulled for Gabriel Fernandez um, and what he found on it. Because the county really did not want all of the awful cases of child abuse that they had on record to be out there in the public. Right. Elected officials are the ones expected to answer to this, and they don't have a way to answer for it. Yep. My guess is they probably don't know a whole lot about it. Exactly. But they might. Mm -hmm. So they're pulling up Gabriel's report and he is talking about how, you know, they had found BB gun shots in his face. His mother had shot him in the face with a BB gun. Numerous reports from mandated reporters like the child's teacher. So she had seen something and she had reported it. There was a security guard at a county welfare office who had noticed something And tried to phone it in. All of these are examples of the correct way to handle this. Right. 
and it doesn't sound like anything actually happened. And why didn't it work? Why didn't it? It wasn't just one time that got missed. No. How many times does this need to happen? And how how many times does this happen to kids every day? Yeah. I mean, it probably happens a lot more than we think. And maybe they're just not getting abused as severely Mm -hmm. to kill them. Mm -hmm. But they still are getting abused. And they have to live through that. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine (sighs) right now, Kenzie, what's going on with COVID and people being in quarantine? Yeah. And having to be home all the time with their abusers. Can you imagine if the only sense of safety and peace that you had all day was to be able to go to school and at least have a hot lunch? And hang out with friends and right. teachers who cared about you. Yep. And you haven't had that now in six months. Whew, that's a tough one to think about. It's awful. So, you know, all, all of these uh, social workers who had been involved in his case, there had been sheriffs that were involved. The mother had a known bad track record with her other children. Yep. This wasn't an isolated situation. That's the biggest thing here. So many instances and red flags, no serious things ever done to stop it. It doesn't sound like he was ever taken out of her home after he had gone, you know, after he had moved in six months prior to this happening. Yep. They were very hesitant to release this report because it held many legal consequences for the sources who leaked it. And of course, the press is going to be eating it up because getting this report is a black and white timeline of exactly what went wrong. Exactly. So Friday, May 31st of 2013, the front page story is on there. The eight-year-old in Palmdale, the child that could not be ignored any longer, here was what happened. There was enormous outcries from the community, including protests for justice. And in our day and life now, we know what these protests can do. Yes. They are making statements and... This was not one to be ignored. Yep. And hopefully this will make a change in <sighs> something. Let's right? hope. That's that's kind of the hope behind this is is protests like that will will help make a change in, in, in something in this flawed system that we live in. Yes. Well, then we go on to meet Jackie Lacey. She's the L.A. district attorney. She was actually the first African-American woman to hold this position. And I want to say since it had been started back in like 1850. Go, girl. That is fucking Awesome. It's amazing. And I Googled, and she's still in office today. Of course she is. So she's, she's a badass. She is a badass. She's, she's do- like her. She's doing God's work out there. Yes, she is. <laughs> um, so she's been serving since 2012. She said that they handle 16,000 cases a month. Can you imagine? That's the DA's office in LA. That's not California. No. That is just LA. That's one county. That's mind-blowing. I mean, because we're not used to that here in Minnesota. We, oh, I gosh, mean, no. Minneapolis probably has quite a few cases that come into them every month. But I, I want to say it's a far cry from the 16,000 cases a month. I would agree with you on that. That's that's crazy. And I haven't Googled anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Google. I love to get the backstory if I can. <laughs> I need to. Oh. Well, they actually, they show pictures, actual photographs mm-hmm. of Gabriel's body. And it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, they don't show his full face or anything like that no. because that can be traumatizing to people. But just some of the things that you saw and you could actually visualize and what it is. Yeah. It's it's, and it's awful. Those were all taken at the hospital, right? While yes. they were. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like right as he had come in or shortly after he had come Ugh. in. And there was news coverage all over about Gabriel's case at this time. And we find out his mom, Pearl Fernandez, and his mom's boyfriend, Azario Aguirre, were both charged with capital murder. Yeah. We find out that Pearl, her bail was set at about $100,000. And then Azario Aguirre's was set at a million dollars. Wow. Which... I guess I don't really get why they wouldn't be the same. I think maybe she just doesn't pose as much of a threat, they think, if she can make bail. But she's just as responsible as Azario is, even if he was the muscle to it. Yeah. She was the brain behind it. Absolutely. I I wholeheartedly believe that if that's happening in a Mm -hmm. family dynamic, it is both of those adults that are have something to do with it, especially since they're both being charged. Well, and if you think about it, too, they had only been together for like a year and a half, two years. Right. So it wasn't like he was the man who helped raise this child. He had basically just met him. So... I just, as a mother, as a someone who was a single mother for several years, I would never 
have allowed some man to just walk in and start disciplining my children. No. It would never happen. My husband and I, even now, have issues. And he's been around in my daughter's life for five years. Right. But sometimes I'm like, hey, you're being a little too harsh on her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good. Which is good and healthy, as it should be, right? Yeah. But what happened in this case was... Unforgivable. Not good or healthy. No, not no. at all. And we see that, we actually see, and they panned a San Quentin state prison. Yeah. They say that less than 1% eligible for death penalty actually get brought to be a death penalty case. Right. Which is really low. I thought it would actually be more than that, but yeah. it's actually pretty low. And they were thinking, like, is this a death penalty case? Yeah. And they believed it, it was, which obviously I would too. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. And they also prosecuted the four social workers as well. We get their names. We get Kevin Baum, Gregory Merritt, Stephanie Rodriguez, and Patricia Clement. All right. And they are brought on felony charges of child abuse and falsifying public records in regards to Gabriel's torture and death. Mm. And if they get prosecuted and get found guilty, that'll be the first time that has ever happened to social workers before. Ever. But Jackie Lacey said... That they stepped over the line. They did. They have to deal with the consequences of their actions. 100%. Yep. They also had a quick clip on the news of what Jackie Lacey had said and she had said about these social workers. We believe these social workers were criminally negligent and performed their legal duties with willful disregard for Gabriel's well-being. And they should be held responsible for their actions. Absolutely, they should. I mean, come on. You can't just hold the mother and the boyfriend responsible when there were so many other people that touched this case. Yep. And obviously, there's four of them there. Yeah. Getting prosecuted. Not one. Yeah. There's four separate people. So they all got his case at a separate time, I'm assuming. Yeah. They probably don't work on cases directly next to each other at the same time. I wouldn't assume they would. Yeah. I don't think they do or doesn't really make sense that they would, but something's wrong there. I was a little bit surprised. In my head, and I don't know a whole lot about CPS or anything like that, but in my head, I assumed that if you were a child in the system, you had one social worker. I would have assumed that too. And you kept that social worker unless, for example, that person was retiring or, you know, maybe they moved. moved, passed away, whatever. You would be assigned a different social worker. So I was a little bit, I guess, surprised that there were four. I was a little bit too, but I was thinking because obviously we realize how big LA exactly. is. It, it probably would be way too much of a workload to have individual cases be assigned to people because You're probably there's right. probably so many people in the system out there, which is terribly sad. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's probably why they do it there. It might not be that way everywhere. You're right. It might be different in yeah. different cities and different states. It might be different just depending on their population and how many things actually happen and how many kids they have in the system. And yeah, you're you're probably right. And maybe that is, you know, I mean, we're small town, right? Maybe that's just how I perceive it, perceive it, right? I I do too. I'm right there with you. Okay. Because yeah, I was very surprised when they started naming out four people. (laughs) I know. So they move on then to the deputy district attorney for LA County. He is a senior experienced prosecutor in these types of cases. His name is Jonathan Hatami. Now he, in the documentary, they show him in his car and he's taking us over to the apartment that Gabriel lived at with his mother and her boyfriend. And he's talking about the neighborhood. And he's saying it's not the nicest neighborhood, definitely not the safest neighborhood. You know, he doesn't seem to be in fear, but... I think he knows that shady shit happens. Yep. In fact, at one point, he's even pointing out graffiti art on different buildings and walls. And he explains that this symbol is for this gang and this symbol is for this gang. And if there's a number 13 next to it, it indicates that it's part of the Mexican mafia. Right. So, you know, he knows this is not a super safe area. But then he you know, is driving down Gabriel Street and he sees this tree. They call it Gabriel's Tree. And it's memorialized for Gabriel um, in front of his apartment complex. And it has tons of things all over it. It's very sweet. It is very sweet. Yes. Teddy bears. There's pictures of him. There's candles, flowers, you know, the, um, I guess what you would expect to see at a memorialized area. Yes. But it was very, very sweet. So what he talks about is The night that the 911 call comes in, it's about, you know, it's past 10 p.m., so it's dark. And 
the paramedics show up and there's a child in the front yard of this apartment complex. We later find out his name is Ezekiel. He's Gabriel's brother. And they didn't mention how old he was, or if they did, I missed it at this point. I missed it too. Okay, then they didn't, they must not have mentioned it then. Because usually one of us will pick up on something. (laughs) Um, So they say that he's outside guiding and directing paramedics and the fire department to the apartment that his brother is in. And the one thing that he says, Jonathan Hatami, is how odd it would be to have a child outside in this neighborhood after dark. Because it's not safe. So it was a very odd situation to begin with. I just think there's the parents aren't there and they don't really care yeah. what their kids are doing at, at this point. We can tell. Yeah. She clearly doesn't care what her kids are doing or. But you know what? Side note. Why is Gabriel the one getting all this abuse? Yeah. And her other kids aren't as much. They might be, but not as, obviously as much as Gabriel. Yeah. We don't find that out yet. Yeah. Side tangent, but I just have to throw it out there. That I found was really weird. Not to say yeah. I'd ever want the other kids to be abused too, but you would think if one's getting abused, they probably all are. And yeah. it's probably all in the same fashion. One's talking out, not listening, and they're getting abused because that's just what their parents do. Sure. I don't know, but I found that to be odd. Yeah. She doesn't seem to be an equal opportunity offender when it comes to her children. No. Um, And again, like you said, we may find out later on. My first initial gut response to that question when you asked, why is he the one? My gut reaction is there was something about him specifically. Could it have been maybe his precocious nature? Could it have been potentially who his father was? Sure. Maybe she wasn't getting child support for him and took it out on him. There are lots of fucked up things that people do. And unfortunately, there are no IQ tests or tests of any sort before we're allowed to procreate in this country. So he's talking about the scene at the apartment uh, when paramedics show up. And their initial concern is obviously this eight-year-old boy who is having cardiac arrest, which is unheard of. Right. So they're scrambling, trying to get him back to at least a stable enough position to get him out of the apartment and get him over to the hospital. So they're not fully taking into account what's around them. Right. Yeah. Pictures were taken, though, and we see the pictures. Yes, we see the pictures. So finally, when the actual investigation team gets to the scene, and they're they're actually going to investigate, you know, this is now a crime scene. Nobody can be in here. They're going to take pictures. They're going to try to figure out what the hell happened, because clearly, this child did not slip and fall in the bathtub. Right. So the investigator who shows up, and she's she's going through the apartment, and what she brings with her is a stack of red stickers. Now, these red stickers are supposed to indicate spots in the apartment where she finds blood. Um, or blood splatter. And I believe she was a DNA analyst, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you're probably right. And so she brings these red stickers to start marking off all of the spots in the apartment where they can find blood so that they can try to put together a scene for that night. What actually happened? (laughs) We come to find out she runs out of red stickers because there's so much blood found around this apartment. She doesn't have enough to cover it. She has to start using her yellow stickers, which... They didn't exactly explain what those are, but if red is for blood, I'm going to guess yellow is for another type of bodily fluid that we don't exactly need to mention at this point, (laughs) but maybe later on. So she's going through the house. That's when they come across this cupboard in the bedroom at the foot of the bed that is clearly has been used often. There's a little piece of wood, like you mentioned, in between the handles to act as a lock. And there's a little bit of a gap in between the doors. So you can see that at some point, someone had been in there, and they're assuming that it was Gabriel. So he was in this cupboard. They don't know if he was locked in here all day, if he was locked in here at night. Uh, He wasn't able to get out. He certainly wouldn't have been able to breathe very well. And they do say something about how there was enough of a crack that he could see that somebody was in the room, but nobody was going to help him. But it does sound like some of the other kids were able to sneak him food. Thankfully. Yeah. So who knows? And I'm sure they probably had to do it behind the parents' back. Oh, You know, when they weren't home or maybe when the boyfriend wasn't home and maybe the mom was doing something else and they could quickly sneak him food. I'm like... 
Could you imagine a child having to sneak their sibling food because they're not getting fed? No. Oh, my God. And this cupboard is absolutely terrifying. It it, it truly is. It, it is, is that of nightmares. So once the news breaks of all of this, what's happening in this apartment that nobody knows about, it resonates with so many people in the community. As we mentioned before, there are you know protests going on. They have vigils, candlelight vigils. They have memorials set up. This is a large gathering for a small child that was lost in the system and allowed to be tortured and killed. Right. And, and they basically showed us a, a memorial montage a little bit yeah. of, of all these different things that were happening for Gabriel, which, you know, pulled at my heartstrings a little bit that made me feel a little bit better because this whole time I'm almost crying watching this show. It's, oh my gosh. And I'm getting goosebumps and I just can't believe it. I'm getting angry and frustrated that this could happen to this poor little boy because we see beautiful smiling pictures of him. Isn't that the you worst know, part? That's the, I mean, you want to imagine that at some point, he was happy. Yeah. There was a point in his life where he knew what joy was and he knew what love was. And he, you want to believe that in your mind as yeah. a as a normal human being. But yeah. it was... Do you know what it reminded me of, Kenzie? Hmm. It reminded me of a abused or tortured dog. You know how yes. dogs are going to, and especially puppies who don't know, They will always come running up to you, you know, excited to see you, tails wagging. Maybe they're smiling a little bit Mm -hmm. if your dog likes to do that. All three of mine sure do. (laughs) And it just reminded me of that. Children are so much like that when they're young. They want to see the good, you know? They don't want to see the bad. They're one of our most vulnerable people in this world. Absolutely. Next to elderly and animals. Yeah. As they state in the documentary, they are vulnerable people in our society, and we need to take care of them. Yeah. Because they can't take care of themselves. No, they have no frame of of reference. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, so back to the story. Um, we, We see the courthouse. Yes. And they're talking about all the major trials that happen on the ninth floor in L.A. County. Yeah. We get O.J. Of course, O.J. would come into this documentary. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> we get Michael Jackson, the doctor who was prosecuted. Yes, for his death. For his death. Yep. yep. We, he, we get him. We get Phil Spector. Oh, gosh. Yeah. We get the Grim Sleeper, which I had to side Google yeah. a little bit because I hadn't heard of him before. Um, and then now Gabriel's case is yeah. on the ninth floor as well. But I did, on a side note, do the Grim Sleeper, and I found out that his name is Lonnie David Franklin Jr., and he was a serial killer who was responsible for at least 10 murders. Jeez. And one attempted murder, along with some rapes and other things like that. Sure. He was sentenced to death on August 10th, 2016. Oh, that was like four years ago. Yesterday, almost. I'm surprised I literally didn't hear of this case yet. You may have, but maybe you just didn't know about the nickname. Could be. Yeah. Could be, because that's how he was in Google. It said the Grim Sleeper everywhere. Yeah. And then it showed his name as well. Oh, yeah. You know Um, how the press loves to give out nicknames to these serial killers. Yes, they do. Sensationalize them, like always. Absolutely. Why not? Now, Azario's trial was first. Yes. After his got done, they would do an intellectual disability trial for Pearl, and that would last about a week. So that leads me to think that she has some learning disability or maybe some brain injury or something. Yeah. And maybe that is why the way she is, because I've never heard of something like that before. Yeah. Is she a vulnerable adult? Right. We don't know. We don't know yet, but an intellectual disability trial. They must have looked at that picture of her with that terrible lipstick. Must have. (laughs) (laughs) And then after they do that, they'll do Pearl's actual trial. Yep. And then they'll do the trial for the social worker case after that. And it sounds like they're doing all four social workers together. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I believe so. Yeah. What they show, they showed us an image of the social workers together. Yeah. It looked like they were maybe pleading or listening to a judge or something. We just see them panned out together. So I'm assuming it must be together. They yeah. must not be, be doing that individually. individually. Yeah. Then we get on the screen Deputy District Attorney Scott Yang, who we do find out is the co-counsel with Jonathan Hatami. That's right. The DA on this case. 
And we find out also that this is Jonathan's first death penalty case. Oh, gosh. So he is gearing up. He is making sure he has all of his T's crossed and his I's dotted on this case, which completely makes sense. We then get into Detective Elliot Uribe. I think I'm pronouncing Uribe. Is it Uribe? It is Uribe. Uribe. Okay. Initially... He was the investigating officer. He took the initial statements from witnesses. And we also see on-screen text that he was interviewing Asario Aguirre on May 23rd, 2013 for the first interview that they had with him. Yeah. It sounded like it was at the hospital, right? Or was it not then, but just very shortly after? You know, I'm not sure. Did we find out when they even got charged? I I, I don't know if we find out when they got charged. I do not have a date written down for that. So, no, I don't. Okay. Mm -mm. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll have more information on that later on. I'm assuming, though, because he was a minor being taken to the hospital by ambulance, I don't know if Pearl and her boyfriend would have been allowed in the ambulance with them or if they would have just been... I mean, they have to go. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. It it probably had to have been soon after because they knew. Yeah. Almost right away that something else was going on. Right, right. So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit as to what Detective Uribe had stated. Yeah. But basically he was talking to um, Azario, basically stating that he deals with a lot of monsters, but he also deals with people who just make mistakes. Sure. And he basically came out front and asked him what happened in the bathroom. And Azario said that he spanked him. So Detective Elliot Uribe asked Azario why he got so upset. And Azario stated that Gabriel had told his mom, Pearl, while he was gone, Yeah. Why are you with him if he's always hurting me? If you leave him, I will start being good. I literally teared up when he said that. I'll start being good? Begging your mom to leave a piece of shit... I can't even imagine. Well, then I got really pissed because, Ugh. of course, Pearl ends up telling Azario that clearly. Why would she do that as the mother? Like, well, your child is scared, yeah. you know? And Azario basically said that he he got mad and asked Gabriel, why don't you say that in front of me? Yeah. It's like, because you beat him. He's scared of you. He's terrified of you. Why would he ever say that in front of you? Because he knows that you're going to beat him. Yeah. Or... Take your cigarettes out on him. Yeah. Or drag him around or hang him by his feet or whatever you guys have been doing, you know? All he was doing was reaching out for help from his mom. And his mom turned behind his back and told her boyfriend what he said. Yep. She failed him. And then he ended up dying that night. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. We do get a little bit of backstory about Pearl and Azario, and we learned that they had met about a year and a half or two years prior to Gabriel's yep. death. We see that he was a security guard at one time, mm-hmm. um, kind of that that meaty big guy. He looked like a big guy from the pictures. Oh, yeah. He was much bigger than Pearl. Much bigger than Pearl. Yeah. And way bigger than Gabriel. Oh, my God. And I get so fucking mad when I think about it. Seriously, pick on I'm someone like, your own size. Oh, he's such a piece of shit. He's such a piece of shit. I just can't get over how someone can do this, especially a big, huge adult like him. I mean, he had to weigh 250. Small right? dick energy is all I can come up with. Yep. That's what it is. And Elliot Uribe states what Azario was telling him didn't match up. Yeah. Downplaying, basically, he was downplaying where he hit Gabriel and that he, quote, never hit him in the face. Fucking A. Um, I doubt that. We fucking know that that's not true. Yeah. Look at the huge welt on his head. How the hell do you think he got that? I'm sure he got hit with a bat or something because we saw the bat in that other picture. Yeah, there was a picture that they, they said had... it was a huge indent yeah. in his head. Yeah, that had to be from something very blunt and very hard. I can't imagine that an adult. Well, I mean, I know children's heads are still growing, right? So they're mm-hmm. probably a little bit more pliable than ours are. Yeah, I haven't googled to see at what age does your skull fully form and harden, but I can't imagine that an adult could hit an eight-year-old in the skull enough to fracture it and not at all hurt his own hand. You know what I mean? Right. The skull is pretty tough. It's and I think by protecting the time a pretty big thing. Exactly. And I think by eight, it's probably well fused together by that point. But I would assume so. They could still be growing. So it, it could still yeah. have those soft spots there at, yeah. at some point where it could break easily. Yeah. We then find out that the jury had been selected, seven okay. women and five men. Okay. And we basically show them getting ready for the trial. Um, and Jonathan said that, that this is all about Gabriel. 
Yep. And then we hear that interview tape with that informant. He's kind of speaking in the background a little bit. Yep. They bring him back in. Yep. And he said that the sheriffs had been called to his house days before he died. Why didn't they intervene? Why had they been called? I'm so, I'm just itching to find out. I'm sure it was another abuse allegation or something had to have, someone had to see something for them to come over. Yeah. Or someone had to be called or whatever. But really, how deep does it go? And that's what the informant says. Yeah. Like, how deep does this really go? Clearly, it's, it's a lot deeper than we realize yet. Yeah. And that was the end of the episode. Yeah. That was that. That's where they left us. Cliffhanger. Now we have to wait till next week to find out what happens next. Well, we don't, but you do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we know what's happening. Y'all have to listen. Oh, my God. What a fucking tragedy this was. It's going to be tough. The next five weeks are going to be tough for us. Seriously. I mean, we knew that there was evil, but there truly is evil in this world that we live in. I can only imagine that it's going to get tougher as we watch and we move through this series. As we mentioned a few times, this is six episodes long. So this is just episode one. This is just the the tip of the fucking iceberg. And we haven't even hit what the trial is yet. And what we hear during the trial. And I'm sure it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. I'm hoping that at the end, we will get justice for Gabriel. If we don't, I'm telling you. I'm raising holy hell. And I'm going to find these fuckers. And I'll... Me too. Fucking do something myself. Yeah, we're from Minnesota. (laughs) We're tough girls. We can do We're tough girls. We can do some shit. (laughs) Oh, God. So... Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Sheer Crime. Don't forget to follow us on social media at mmillard08 and amy underscore sawada on all social media platforms. Make sure to go out, rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us out tremendously and allows us to bring you the next episode. That's right. You wouldn't want to be left on a cliffhanger right like every time, right? <laughs> so join. Oh, yes. Also, join our Facebook group. Uh, we just came up with the Sheer Crime podcast discussion group for all things episode-related. And, you know, just hang out with us. That's right. Yeah. We have so much fun. Yeah. We're hanging out with our friends. We're real people. And we get to interact with you guys. And that's really what yes. we want to do. And again, give us what you guys want to hear. Give us our next episodes. Yeah. Tell us what you want to hear. We'd love to do them for you. So this is a great place for you to come and tell us what you guys want. Agreed. Yes, requests. We love requests. Absolutely. And again, for our social media, that's at M Millard, M I L L A R D 08. And Amy, that's A M E, because I'm unique, underscore Sawada, S O W A D A. In the meantime, don't forget, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. See ya.